This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Nicole Arbach from The Athletic. It is the first podcast of the offseason. We talk some NCAA policy this week. We promise to try to keep it lively. The NCAA convention is going on in California later in the week. How to go about letting athletes be compensated for their names, images, and likenesses is a big part of the agenda. We also talk some football. Is there anyone left at LSU to defend the national title? Uh, Houston quarterback De'Ara King might have found a new school by the time you hear this. We'll talk a little bit about that. And Baylor has hired LSU defensive coordinator Dave Aranda to be its head coach after a flirtation with Virginia Tech's Justin Fuente. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Westwood One Podcast, at Apple Podcasts, just about anywhere you get your podcast. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast, a uh, recurring guest, though it has, I feel like it's been a little while, Nicole Arbach. Yeah, from The Athletic. Thanks so much for joining me today. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Like you said, I mean, all of our conversations are recorded, so it's either on the radio or it's on a podcast. Exactly. We haven't talked in a while, so now we need to record it. That's true, because, I mean, the last time I think we met in a situation like this was probably on Sirius XM when we were hosting a show together, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> yeah. So Nicole and I will both be in Southern California this week to cover the NCAA convention. Uh, Name, image, and likeness is sort of the buzzy topic. Let's talk about that, and then we'll get in some football. But let's talk a little policy and a little wonkishness, because I think there is this sense of, wow, the convention is here. Name, image, and likeness is a really huge issue. The, you know... Feds may be getting involved, all these state laws. The NCAA is trying to come up with some legislation or ways to go about compensating athletes for their name, image, and likeness. So there's a lot of stuff going on, but I'm wondering, and even me as I step into this, should we expect anything to come of this convention of substance? I don't think so. I mean, I think I'd be pretty surprised if we do have some major decisions or movements or stances, because to me, it feels like we and we as in like the media and the public, but also the athletic directors and the presidents and all the people who are like super involved in this. Like, it feels like everyone's kind of in a waiting game because right now you still have different states proposing different laws and we're still going to need to eventually get to a point where there's federal intervention. And that's what a lot of people in college sports actually want, which feels weird to them a little bit, but like they need to have this be federal and national so that the rules are the same and the laws are the same. 
And then they would go from that point, once they have the parameters, to actually, like, building the model and the system and how it would actually work to compensate these athletes for, you know, their sponsorships and their deals and their, I don't know, sponsored Instagram posts or whatever this world is going to look like. Because, you know, there's a lot of administrators. I'm sure you've had the same conversations I have, Ralph, where everyone's, like, terrified about the impact of recruiting um, and trying to make sure that that's going to be, like, kind of as clean as possible with this new world. But I, I just feel like everyone's kind of in this holding pattern until the law actually is national slash federal and the parameters are set because right now I think what we're going to see, I assume there are certain states that are like moving faster than others. Like they're going to have to fight them in courts and get like a stay on them because like, I just can't see like us in a world where eight months from now, I don't know which state's first, but let's say it's Florida, Florida enacts the law and it, and it takes effect. Like, I don't think we're going to get to that point where it's going to be individual states. Like there's got to be maneuvering from the legal system and like Congress before we get to that point. That's my read on the situation that like, until that happens, I don't know how much movement there will be like in our world of like knowing what the model is going to look like. So I want to get you back to something you had just alluded to. And, and I think you had said there's this sort of holding pattern waiting for some type of federal intervention on this issue. And I think what you said is, and that's kind of weird, right? Yeah. Why is it, it and why is that? Why is it odd that now all of a sudden college sports is opening its doors to federal legislation? Well, the reason it's weird is because the leaders in college sports never really want federal intervention in their areas, right? Like the Congress has like dipped its toe into sports and sports issues and things, baseball for example, college sports. There have been examples and like nobody really likes that. They they like to be their own entity and and not that directly impacted by politics, but also just by Congress in general. And meanwhile, like now you have NCAA President Mark Emmer and other people talking about how much time they've been spending in Washington talking to legislators about name, image, and likeness and about the collegiate model and all this stuff. And it's just very strange because, again, this is something that like they've really pushed back on and they did not want to be super tied into Congress and, and the, like they didn't want Congress and the government to dictate how the NCAA model works. But now it's kind of like, it's not, well, maybe it is a last resort because maybe if like a few years ago, they'd been more proactive on the NATO to likeness thing, we wouldn't get to this point. But now that's really it because they can't have, they just cannot have different states with different laws on this. And so that is the last resort. They have to have something national. They have to have something federal. Um, and so now you have administrators who have never said things like, oh, I really want federal intervention, saying, well, now we need a federal solution. And it's very strange. Like, it's very weird. Um, but again, it's, it's really the only it's the only way that this is going to work, because without like really without, you know, just so many um, I, I mean, I'm just trying to think like because basically these, these people would be like freelancers. And you would have different state laws. You'd have different, like, thresholds for different states. The timing would be different, right? Like, if, if certain states implemented this sooner than others, is that a recruiting advantage? Obviously, yes. And so it's, it would be really, really messy if it didn't, if it wasn't a national solution. And, you know, there are a lot of people who still don't like that this is happening, but most people understand that it is. And so they're like, well, 
easiest, and it's not easy, but the easiest way to do this would be a national solution. So now you have people, again, who never said that they wanted the government to get involved in college sports saying we want the government to get involved in college sports. Yeah, and and the interesting thing there also is how far, right? I mean, because you're saying that, and you know, we I think we were in that little scrum with Mark Emmert when multiple people asked him uh, here in New York, like, how do you stop it just at name, image, and likeness? And I think that'll be the interesting question beyond once we get past this issue. Is that hey, man, once Congress is involved and 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 federal legislation is passed, and you can say, well, we really just wanted to have to deal with this one issue. But as you know, you know, name, image, and likeness will be something that branches into all different aspects. And college sports, everything is sort of interrelated here. So who knows if, in a, in, if you know, the starting point is now and all of a sudden two years from now, are there going to be caps on coaches' salaries? Uh, you know that in, in well, the past, in the past, got blown out by by court rulings. But now, does you know Congress step in and say, okay, well, we want to structure, um, we want to put an end to the arms race here in college sports, and and how much you can spend on facilities and things like that. I'm not saying that that's exactly where it's going, but it does lend itself where we are right now. Lends itself to the question: Where does it stop? Well, and how about the fact that Donna Shalala, of all people, is proposing this commission to look at stuff like you're talking about, like these other issues, like like the coaches' salaries, like all of these other aspects of things that honestly are making people in college athletics like really uncomfortable, right? These are all things that like people probably didn't foresee happening 10, 20 years ago. And you have someone who has a background in college athletics proposing to examine it. Um, and so it's someone who's very uniquely qualified in Donna Shalala doing this. And that's something that also people are talking about because that could obviously have a huge impact, like you said, on, on all sorts of aspects of the model moving forward. And, you know, now it, it is popular. It's, there's bipartisan support for the government to look into these things. And for, like, the fact that, that congressmen from different states and different political parties were rushing to propose laws to attack college sports and the collegiate model, I thought was fascinating that it was so popular politically in like a very polarizing time to do that. And now, right, there's support behind this commission to look into college sports that Don Shalala is proposing. There is support to push against the collegiate model right now publicly. And I think that helps, especially in politics, as people are trying to do these things. Yeah, we had a the AP ran a uh, an opinion poll about two weeks ago uh, that found that sixty six percent of respondents think that athletes should be able to profit from endorsements and sponsorship deals. So you know, th- obviously, there's a lot of nuance in there because even when I asked Mark Emmert about the poll results and other people in college sports. What they said is, yes, we, we basically agree. We agree that they should. In fact, that's what we did. We agreed a few months back that we that they should be able to make money here. So uh, that poll doesn't capture a lot of nuance, but I think what the poll does suggest, and if you go pretty much no matter what demographic you look at, is that the popular opinion, popular support is is moving towards – giving athletes more money in some way, shape yeah. or form, giving athletes more money. And and if in the younger you get, the the younger the respondents get, the more aggressive they are. But even 
older Americans, you know, people, you know, above 55 or things along those lines, even there's even support in those circles for, again, figuring out ways that athletes should make more money. So, yes, this is this is one of those issues that has broad support across all party lines. What I think will be interesting is and, and I don't know the answer to this. I am not a political reporter. I do not know the answer to this. But obviously, Congress has got a little busy right now. You know, there's some things going on in the Senate that are pretty important. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I do wonder how much of, you know, multitasking can be done. And if this is one of those things that, again, I have no uh, no idea how long this impeachment trial will last. But does everything sort of get backburnered? To a certain, especially something like this, yeah. which really isn't important, isn't that important. So, how much does this? Could this possibly sort of like push back timetables? When, as you said, there is a certain amount of um, urgency here among the NCAA to get this done because these other state these state laws might start popping up as soon as June. Right. I think that's why they're the most likely thing here is like you get the courts to issue stays on the ones that are trying to get implemented really soon. Oddly enough, the California one that started this whole thing is like the least of the issues because they had a built-in three-year buffer kind of to let people figure it out, to give them that chance to figure out a model and and not kind of force their hand like the next day. Um, So, yeah, it's those states that have popped up since the California law passed Um, and, and because that one is like 2023 and these other ones are trying to go some of them as soon as this summer. So I think the stay is probably the most likely thing, give themselves more time. And you're right. It is not Congress's like number one issue right now. Um, and I have no idea how, how they multitask or where this would be in their priorities. Um, but, but you're right. I mean, it, it's not, there's a lot bigger deals going on, but it is the number one most pressing existential issue for the NCAA and for all the members. But that's kind of why I'm thinking like, it feels like everyone's in a holding pattern. I think at the NCAA convention this week, we're going to have people talking about it. And, um, you know, these are very smart people. Again, you put smart people in a room, they're going to figure out a model to make this work. We just don't know what the parameters are yet. So people don't have to get to the point where they're actually like outlining and writing down a model. But I do think we're going to have the first time, know a lot of different people in the same room talking about this issue in a way that we're allowed to be in that room and listen and it's public um or well it's on the record and i think that will be interesting um but again like i'm not expecting fireworks i mean you could have strong language but like you're not going to have major news breaking out of those sessions what i suspect you could get out of this is something and again, this might not be something that is handed to us in a press release, and it might not even be something that is truly a written down proposal. But you could get, and I always hate using these words because they're so NCAA words and bureaucracy words. You could get the framework of what the leaders, the you know, the people working on this would would like. Like here's here's our wish list of what we would like to have as the framework for, you know, going forward with where where the parameters are, as you said, where are the guardrails, where are the, where are the places we're going to draw mm-hmm. a line and say, no, we don't want to go past here. We want to limit it in this uh, fashion, but here's a place where we can be a little more liberal. Maybe you get that, and that becomes what 
people like Mark Emmert and whatever lobbying firms that they have take to lawmakers and presidents take to lawmakers and say, here's what we would really love for you to work with. Like this, like here's something we'd like for you to work off of because these are our goals. Because I guess that's where the compromise is going to come. It's going to be sort of like, here's the NCAA's goals. Here's what lawmakers think, and they're going to be their their thinking could be swayed by what they're being what's being whispered in their ears, but also what's being whispered in their ears by the other side because you know Ramogi Huma and his group, the National Players Association, came out with a white paper about about a week and a half ago that sort of listed no 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 here's what we want out of this here's what we think would be in the players and the athletes best interest and listen that's going to end up floating its way through congress too so i think there'll be an in- interesting tug of war here between what people on different sides of this issue want and how it gets into the ears of lawmakers yeah i think that's true um and i think like you could you know like some of the things that they might try to do which, again, these might not end up happening, but they might try to tie things to, like, graduation, right? Like, mm-hmm. maybe that's where maybe things go into a trust. You know, things like that, that, like, try to get at that student part of student-athletes that the NCAA loves to use so much. Um, so there's definitely things like that or, like, the way that you would kind of, you know, present a licensing model. Like, I've heard, I've heard people, including um, Jim Delaney and Kevin Warren, the new Big Ten commissioner, use the term collegiate licensing for this stuff, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, so there's different, like, ways, like, broadly speaking, to look at this. So I think you're right. You could be giving directives in those broader areas, like trying to tie it to education, which, again, may or may not actually work, um, and be, you know, the way that you're going to do this. Is it, is, it, is it more of a group? Is it more of an individual thing? Um, and, you know, go from there. So I, I think you're right. I also would not be surprised if they say that it's kind of too early to present those important um, the points of framework, like you were saying, or, or kind of those like focus areas or things that are important to them. I could see I could see them also saying it's still early in the process for that. But you're right that that would be kind of the most we could get out of something like this, where they don't they're not forced into the box just yet of like bunker down, figure out how to make this work because they don't have the rules, they don't have the guardrails. Um, but you're right, we could get hints at what they would like this to look like. All right, so that's enough policy wonkish stuff. We're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to talk some football, <laughs> because, because that's always a lot more fun. I'm talking with Nicole Auerbach from The Athletic. On the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, we'll be back right after this. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. We're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Nicole Arbach is joining us from The Athletic. I will see her in a few days in sunny Southern California, but we will be holed up in a convention center, probably not seeing much of the sun for a couple of days. So that'll be fun, Nicole. Bring your sweater. Those places are always freezing, right? 
I know. Always love to pack layers when you go to Southern California, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just it just seems so inconvenient. So let's talk. <laughs> a, let's talk a little football, and let's start with the reigning national champions. And is there anyone left in LSU to defend this national championship? Because they had nine players declare for the draft. Joe Burrow is leaving because he was done with his eligibility, and both well, I shouldn't say both coordinators because Steve Emzinger is still the coordinator, the offensive coordinator, but Joe. Brady, the prodigy, 20, 30-year-old prodigy who revamped the passing game, he is off to the NFL. And Dave Arando, a bit of a surprise, is off to Baylor. So are we looking like, – I guess what, I'm, what I would what ask you, Nicole, is as you look at LSU toward next year, what – I don't want to say what do you expect, but what are you curious about? After all of the so many major players in this championship run have dispersed, well, it is an interesting scenario because, especially in college football, and especially recently, we haven't really seen a program win it all and then not contend immediately, right? Like we we thought maybe, you know, we thought maybe when Clemson had Deshaun Watson, they lost Deshaun Watson, like maybe there would be a drop-off. There wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, when Alabama has lost certain key players, we've been like, is there going to be a drop-off? Probably not. Alabama's lost different assistant coaches. Hasn't really been a drop-off. They're always in the playoff picture. They're always in the national championship picture. Ohio State, we, that was this year, right? We thought new coach, new quarterback, there could be a drop-off. There wasn't because of the talent, because of the rosters, because of the coaches around. Um, this is kind of losing all of that at once. Um, and one thing it will do is, is definitely lower expectations. I mean, we won't you know, put a ton of pressure on LSU to repeat the way that we did with Clemson this year, the way that we jumped Alabama in the past. Um, but I would say that um, it is unique and it is a problem that I once – I remember having a very interesting conversation with Jay Wright from Villanova couple years ago when they won their second title and that was the year you had like um Dante DiVincenzo and you had like a bunch of players that people didn't really know um just kind of go off and they a bunch of them decided to go pro like a year or two earlier than like in Jay Wright and his coaching staff's minds that they like realistically were gonna go Mm -hmm. like they were too good too fast and they had to go and it was a problem because then the following year, which I think was was last year or the year before for yeah, Villanova, last year, I think. they were they were yeah they they weren't old like they used they were so used to being a veteran led team and they didn't have those veterans and so they were off and they it felt weird and it was no one's fault because when you're in a position where you can be a first round draft pick you take it right and you go and it's, that's some of the issues with some of these LSU players too right like your draft stock is so high, it would it would, doesn't make sense to come back to school. But then it kind of like the cycle and the rhythm of, of how you're building a program gets totally disjointed because you're planning to get older in certain spots and, and you can't. And suddenly, suddenly you're younger and you're inexperienced or you're looking for transfers where in, in places you never considered having to do it because you were so good so fast. So obviously you would take that trade-off. But it kind of throws everything off for at least a year or two afterwards because you just were not planning for that. And I feel like that's where LSU is. And then you throw in losing your defensive coordinator, who a lot of people would say would be the best defensive coordinator in the country, 
and the rising star on the offensive side of the ball in the entire sport, right? So you're adding even more kind of upheaval to that. So I don't know what that means. I don't know what, what is realistic to expect for next year. But we haven't seen we haven't seen something like this in this type of exodus in quite some time. Yeah, what I find fascinating here is I, I feel like a lot of well, I think it was it was just human nature to look at LSU and to see Burrow and the amazing jump he took forward and the addition of Brady and really all those weapons too, right? Because all those receivers all came into their own at once. Some of them were hurt last year. Uh, some of them were just younger players like uh, Chase. And they all just sort of developed at once. And, and as you're peeling back, I, I think there was a curiosity to sort of like, how much of this is Brady? How much of this is Burrow? How much of this is the mm-hmm. receiver? Like clearly, listen, it all came together at once, and I give credit to all of them for making this unbelievably unstoppable offense. Like it's no one person or one part of that equation is responsible for the offense being that good. But I find it fascinating that in the next couple of years – we might get a little bit of an idea of who were the real stars on this team, right? If if Burrow goes off to you know the NFL and becomes an immediate sensation, you'll you'll sort of go, oh well, obviously that was the guy. And if or if Brady goes off, and if they're all super successful, you'll go, wow. You'll step back and go, wow. I guess that was really an all timer. But mm-hmm. it will be interesting to see how credit gets divided over the next, not next year, but the next three or four years when all of these pieces of this great offense are individuals, or go off on their own. Well, that's one of the things I was thinking about when, and I, and I understand recency bias and everything, but since Monday, you have so many people saying like, this is the best team that college football's ever seen, or this is the best quarterback season that college football's ever seen. And there's there's major recency bias going in there because I think that we can't necessarily determine how this team will be viewed just yet because it mattered the way that we think about 2001 Miami. It mattered where all those guys got drafted and how many of them got drafted. And we haven't had that point yet. Right. So like, I think when we're looking at like all timers and like you're talking about like who is responsible for what and what pieces had to work and all of these things, it is going to matter a couple years down the road when people are off on their own, what they're responsible for and where people are drafted and the starts of NFL careers and, and all of those things I think are all going to play into it. So I'm with you totally on that point. Like I think, you know, especially, you know, when you look at someone like Joe Brady, who's just had this meteor meteoric rise, um, I would love to see a larger body of work out of him. You know, like there's just there's some natural things that we know it all worked and it all clicked together um, and the egos worked and everything, you know, pieced together. Um, but I do kind of want to see what some of these people are like on their own. I want to see what Joe Burrow is like, you know, as a Cincinnati Bengal. And I hope the Bengals don't mess them up. But, that's not <laughs> issue. but like, I want to see what all of that looks like, you know, kind of before we, you know, then reflect on where this, team is and these players these people are kind of in college football history just because I think that we did that with Nebraska we did that with Miami and those are the teams that we're comparing LSU to in 2019 so I just think there's a lot of recency bias flying around right now and I do want to see kind of how this plays out for a lot of those key figures over the next three to five years yeah this LSU championship could be viewed in a very as you said a a unique light in that it was simply just a moment in time and and you know the cliche being a perfect storm all these things sort of come together and boom 
and I will be interested to see uh, how this again, and this is and beyond that, beyond just next year, but just also like what this program looks like long term with Ed Ogeron. Okay, I want to. Yeah. I, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I want to hit on one other thing, at least one other thing, and that is. Derek King, at this point, it looks like he's the Houston quarterback who was the AAC player of the year just a couple of years ago. He sat out most of last year as a redshirt, thinking that he might return to Houston. Well, that went out the window, as a lot of us suspected that he might end up in the portal, and he did. Uh, it looks like he might be leaning toward Miami, though he hasn't come out and said that publicly. Uh, and I think Arkansas, LSU, and some other places might can still be in the mix here. You know, is he enough of a game-changing player to really alter the trajectory of Miami? Because God knows Manny Diaz needs something pretty substantial here to happen in year two to get people back on board. Right. I I think he could be. Um, I think that there are a lot of people kind of – nervous about getting too excited about a quarterback transferring to Miami, considering what happened with Pete Martell. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think this is a totally different situation because this is a quarterback who has a lot of experience. He's played a lot. You know, this is someone who Lincoln Riley is raved about after he played Houston and Oklahoma played Houston. I mean, this is someone who comes in as a more established, experienced quarterback than Tate Martell um, and is more than just hype. And so I think that does make a big difference, especially with a new new offensive coordinator in Rhett Lashley and the way that he wants to, you know, kind of morph their offense and, and really run run the way that he was doing it for um, and his background and the places he's been. Like, this is the right type of quarterback for him. It's someone who can play right away. Um, and I think that if you're Miami, you needed something like this. You needed a jolt of energy just because the energy and – storylines and kind of the cloud hanging over this program. Everything has been bad. Yeah. Basically negative, 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 negative. Like it was just by all accounts, a disappointing season. People were frustrated that it was the same things that they were frustrated about all this year, despite, you know, a new offensive coordinator, new coach. It was still, Oh, who's going to be the quarterback? Why are they making mistakes? What about the O-line? It was still the same issues that they've had for the last few years. So I think if you bring in a dynamic quarterback, uh, dynamic dual threat guy who, again, you know, even if the O-line isn't perfect, can, can mask some of those mistakes um, and just be electric, I, I, think, I think that does make a big difference. It gets people excited. It gives them a chance to win some of these games that they, they didn't have a chance to last year. Um, but really it's just the energy and, like, the, the storyline and the narrative and all the – Everything, the momentum shifting from everything being going downhill to, okay, somebody like one of the big names in the transfer portal picked us, like wants to come to us <laughs> right, right. and can be a big impact guy. So I think that would be a big deal for them. And like, I, I do think like with what Rhett Lashley wants to do offensively, I think it makes a lot of sense. Okay, last one. And that is uh, Dave Aranda is now the new coach at Baylor. We alluded to that. Um, he is as actually as we record this, he is having his introductory press conference. Um, I always like Dave Aranda. I don't know him well, but if you've ever talked to him, even even once or twice, one on one, you feel like you know him well because he really likes to explain things. Like 
if you ask him a question about his defense and about defense in general, he is not one who gives cliches. Like he he will go into some fairly deep X's and O's whether you understand it or not. <laughs> um, yes. So, like, I like that part about him, and we'll see what kind of a successful, what kind of a head coach he will be. I, I think it's about time he got this opportunity. What I wanted to ask you about is the other side of that, and that is Justin Fuente uh, clearly spoke to Baylor uh, and and had some interest, and and but now he is back at Virginia Tech. And the question I get asked a lot is, why would he do that? Isn't that a lateral move? So, why would he do that? And the other part of it is, do you think he damaged his relationship at Virginia Tech? I mean, is that is that a is that a difficult thing to do or a risky thing to do when maybe when your program isn't necessarily in, in the greatest of health? Right. I, well, I definitely think it's risky. And th- this is why, you know, every year when people complain about how much search firms make and, you know, we talk about, like, why would you use them if you're going to hire an obvious candidate, right? But you're doing that so that, other people you interview with, it doesn't get out publicly. Um, and that's one of the reasons. Or, you know, you have certain ADs who, if they are interviewing someone and it leaks, they will immediately not consider that person anymore, right? Because this is really fragile when you do these things, especially with sitting head coaches. And it's, it's, this one's particularly interesting because usually it's more, you know, damaging. Like you have guys not wanting to do that in season, like while they're still coaching. And this doesn't have that issue because this was a late, you know, jump from that rule. So it's, it's, it's that. But you have Justin Fuente, who has just filled out his staff. There's been some excitement about that. Um, you know, the, there's a lot of excitement about what's returning on this roster. Um, the way that they kind of rebounded the second half of the season. Like there was this, there were some positive vibes here um, after a shaky start and, and a, you know, frustrated fan base. So then you have this come out. And I don't know necessarily if it impacts his relationship with, like, the people who decide his job status, like the AD, the president, the board, like those people, because I'm sure they were kept in the loop. But the fans are not happy at all. And that is not a good thing. And and possibly, I mean, there could be support staff. There could be other people around the program um, who were not in the loop on this that could be really frustrated, too. Because, you know, I actually thought, like, that he could be really good at Baylor and that things have been a little bit dicey at, at, at Virginia Tech. And, and not dicey in the sense that, like, they were going to get rid of him. But just, we, I think we all thought that this was going to be, like, a slam dunk hire and that it would be really smooth. And it hasn't been really smooth. And they haven't, you know, won the ACC. And they haven't really contended to win the ACC or, um, you know, get up to the level that Clemson is or Florida State used to be and things like that. So, um, there's definitely like frustration, I think, on all sides of the Virginia Tech situation. But then you have this leak and come out that he actually went through with this process, even if it's just like, you know, some conversation, one conversation, two conversations to entertain that idea. I just, I just don't think that helps anything, especially when you're in a situation where there is frustration on both sides. And, you know, the fan base is not happy with how you've performed so far. And, yeah, Bud Foster is retiring. He was that last link to the Frank Beamer era. Um, I don't know. There's just there's so many moving parts there that like I don't know about you, Ralph, but I think I think that that's one of the um, storylines that I'm actually most fascinated to watch play out through the spring and into next season because it's really rare that you have a sitting head coach like 
actually like it actually get out they were interested or talking about a different job as a sitting head coach and then stay yeah and like what does that mean yeah, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, especially with the timing for it, because it, it not only was there a dalliance there, but it was also late. It was after, you know, after yes. the point where you know Virginia Tech probably would have been in a little bit of a lurch if it had lost its head coach at that point. So, hey, Nicole, I appreciate the time. As always, I will see you in the lobby of the Anaheim Convention Center at some point. We will both be bundled up, I'm sure, because to uh, to escape from the extreme air conditioning that you get in these places, and hopefully. Maybe we we shake a little news out of the tree of the NCAA convention. All right. I will try. You will try. Hopefully we'll shake something. (laughs) See you, Nicole. Thanks. All right. Thanks for having me. And now three and out. First down. USC looks like it got a nice win this week. The Athletic is reporting that offensive coordinator Graham Harrell will stay with the Trojans after being courted by the Philadelphia Eagles. USC so desperately needs to string together some positivity heading into the February signing period. USC was also moving toward a deal with former Texas defensive coordinator Todd Orlando as of this recording to be the Trojans DC. Orlando is a good example of life as a defensive coordinator these days. Just a couple of years ago, he was trending fast as a possible head coaching candidate after having success at Houston under Tom Herman. He went to Texas with Herman and got plenty of kudos for the defense that helped the Longhorns win 10 games in 2018. That D fell apart in 2019, and Orlando was out. It is really hard to produce consistently good defenses in the age of offense. USC could be buying low on Orlando. Second down. Former Mississippi State coach Joe Moorhead landed nicely at Oregon as offensive coordinator. He will have to break in a new starting quarterback with the Ducks. Apparently, the coaches there are confident they may have a good one in Tyler Shuck. Moorhead's spread offense has produced some really good running games, and not just with Saquon Barkley at Penn State. The issues at Mississippi State were with the passing game and finding consistency at quarterback. The Bulldogs were second in the SEC in yards per rush each season Moorhead was there. That would suggest he should be a good fit with Ducks head coach Mario Cristobal, who very much wants to build Oregon's identity around strong line play and power running. Third down, Georgia seems to be trying to undergo an LSU-like transformation of its offense. Last week, Kirby Smart hired Todd Monken to be the offensive coordinator with the Bulldogs. Monken has spent the last few years in the NFL and was head coach at Southern Miss before that. He also spent time at Oklahoma State before that. He is definitely not the guy you bring in if you want to run your offense under center and hand off on first down 60% of the time. Smart also brought in Buster Faulkner, who has been a quarterback coach and offensive coordinator at Arkansas State and Southern Miss to work as an offensive analyst. Add in a grad transfer quarterback in Jamie Newman from Wake Forest, and there is no doubt changes are coming to Georgia's offense. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Julie Walker, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts and at Westwood One Podcast. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College 
Football Podcast. This podcast is presented by Regions Bank. You're chasing your goals, and it's up to you how you want to get there. Let Regions Bank coach you with financial tips that fit your everyday grind. Visit regions.com slash next hyphen step to learn more. Regions, member FDIC. FDIC.